You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everybody and welcome to the Health Hub. My name is Kathy Biasse and I'm your host and along with Alex Diaz we'd like to welcome you to our show today. Good morning Alex. Good morning Kathy. How are you today? I'm excited as always. As always. We had some sad news here as Toronto Blue Jays fans. Our beloved Jerry Howarth is retiring quite suddenly after 36 years. So Alex and I have commiserated about that before the show but uh, we both love Jerry and thank him so much for everything that he did for the fans of the Toronto Blue Jays and our own special quiet way of of wishing him well and uh, he can't be replaced but you know time marches on and things change and I guess we have to get used to it. That's right. The games still go on, right? The games still go on. We are live today in studio. If you would like to join us, please call in 416-245-1534. Follow us on all of our social media sites. We are at Instagram at the Health Hub RMC, Twitter at the Health Hub RMC, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or if you've missed a piece of the show that you'd like to be informed on, you can always email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. So lots of different ways for you to get a hold of us if you'd like to. And we do like hearing from you for sure. I wanted to talk to you a little bit as we are both seated here about sitting and the impact that it is having on our health. We sit a lot. We watch TV, but I think probably the biggest culprit right now is sitting at the computer and it's a necessary part of our lives. It's a necessary part of office work, but it can be something that can really be a drain on our health. It can lead to many issues, including weight gain, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, not to mention the uh, posture and, and fatigue that you actually do get from sitting all the time. Right, Alex? You wouldn't, you wouldn't think so, considering that one is sitting not and not using energy. You would ne- One would naturally think that you're not losing right losing that energy but you do it is fatiguing and one of the the simplest things for you to implement in your day is to you know use something that like your phone um a fitbit we had a, a show a while back on biohacking and fitbit came up there as one of the easiest ways to, you know, it really, when you have something that you're watching and it's telling you that you haven't moved too much in a day, it, it keeps you accountable. But even if you can just stand up, I mean, stand up, march a bit, the schools and a lot of offices now are getting stand up desks. My daughter's old high school had their computer racks hooked up to a wall. So they stood there, but just a little piece of advice. It does help with circulation. It helps with your uh, blood flow. Very, very important. So it's, it's something that we all, I think, or most of us are guilty of doing a lot of sitting uh, and it's something to keep in mind. And I'd like, and I'd like to, to point, pass on that to you a little health tip. But I wanted to keep it short today because we have a very special guest. I'm very, very much looking forward to her being on the show. Uh, Dr. Anna Yusum is a psychiatrist, and psychiatrists are physicians. They are medically trained, and thus it only makes sense that their field of practice follows the medical model. So when an established medically trained physician goes beyond the medical model in her practice and starts to integrate something that we have considered to be outside of science, not verifiable so much by science, but that is changing, and I'm sure she'll get into that, and having great success with helping her patients. She starts to push the boundaries of her field, and people are starting to take notice. She has been a guest on the recent Goop Summit. We may get into that if we have 
if we have time. But um, our guest today is Dr. Anna Yusim or Yusim. You'll he- probably hear me say both ways because uh, my, for some reason, my natural inclination is to go to Yusim. But Dr. Anna Yusim is an award-winning, internationally recognized psychiatrist, keynote speaker, and best-selling author of the book Fulfilled. How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. She has a psychiatry practice in Manhattan where she has uh, helped over a thousand patients. After working as a a neurobiology researcher with Dr. Robert Sapolsky, PhD, and completing her studies at Sanford University, Yale Medical School, and the NYU Psychiatry Residency Training Program, Dr. Yusim felt that there was something missing from her life. And in her quest to find it, she traveled, lived, and worked in over 50 countries while studying Kabbalah, learning Buddhist meditation, and working with South American shamans and Indian gurus. She now lives in Manhattan with her husband, where her practice is. And before we go to break, I just want to give you some of the praises that have come from her book by some notable people. Uh, This is from Deepak Chopra, author of You Are the Universe. If you want to understand how the science of spirituality can help you transform and heal, this is an important book to read. From Marion Williamson, New York Times bestselling author of A Return to Love, more and more psychiatric professionals are recognizing the role of spirituality in treating anxiety and depression part of a vital pushback against the over-medication of Americans. I admire those like Dr. Anna Yassim who are leading the charge. And finally, fulfilled is a remarkable achievement for a doctor and writer. Yassim's day on earth is still young. Her trajectory seems unlimited. So she asserts, sorry, so she asserts can be, her asserts can be, her assets can be yours and she aims to help you get there. And that's from Psychology Today. So after our break, we will meet and talk with Dr. Anne Yassim. Well, I called your name a long time ago And you sprung a well from a heart of stone But I was careful then what I let you see Only thought you wanted the best of me The less I trust you, the less I grow The more you love me, the more I know I don't have to be afraid to show All of me, all of me Where this hurt, you show me what healing can do Where this hatred, you show me how kindness can move Where this fear deep inside, I won't run, I won't hide so that you can see every broken piece And open up my heart And love you in my heart My whole heart So I'm ready now, gonna let you in All the way to the scars beneath my skin and You don't look away cause you understand you hold my heart with a gentle hand Oh, where this hurt You show me what healing can do Where this hatred You show me how kindness can move Where this fear deep inside I won't run, I won't hide I'll give you all of me So that you can see every broken piece And open up my heart Less I trust you, the less I grow The more you love me, the more I know I don't have to be afraid to show All of me, all of me Where this hurting Oh Where the sorrow and shame Enter into the pain Where this hurting You show me what healing can do Where this hatred You show me how kindness Inside. I won't run, I won't hide I'll give you all of me So that you can see every broken piece And open up my heart 
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. And just before we talk to Dr. Annie Yassim, I'm going to reread that quote because I think that the commas here kind of confuse me. So here we go again. Fulfilled is a remarkable achievement for a doctor and writer. Yassim's day on earth is still young. Her trajectory seems unlimited, so she asserts can be yours, and she aims to help you get there. And that's from Psychology Today. Good morning, Dr. Yassim. How are you? Good morning, Kathy. Thank you for having me. I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Oh, I'm very good. I'm very good. So excited about our conversation. I think it's just going to be so enlightening for people. You know, we have this idea of psychiatry as lying on a, a bed and getting a prescription, I think, you know, from the movies. And, and what you're doing is just so forward thinking. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. And indeed, I do believe it's so important to expand the existing medical model, which, like you said, is so focused sometimes on prescriptions and medications. And But really, a lot of the answers to many of the issues we have are solved and are really better understood by looking within, whether it be psychologically, spiritually, or in other ways. And this is not to say that there aren't biological or chemical imbalances that medications can help, because certainly there are, but that's just a piece of the puzzle and not the full puzzle. Well, you are, you know, I don't know your exact age, and you certainly don't have to reveal it, but you seem awfully young to to already be expanding these boundaries that I mean you you've gone through so much schooling as evidenced by your biography, um, it's it's amazing that you're starting to incorporate this now. What what possessed you or what mindset made you start to realize that there was something more? Yeah, so it was really my own dark night of the soul and my own recognition that. All of these tools that I had under my belt and all of my training were really failing me in being able to pull myself out of my own darkness. This was towards the end of my residency training, where all the structures I had so deliberately built up around me seemed to be crumbling. And that included a relationship I had for the first time ever. Also, I was in academic trouble. And, you know, here I am, this hardworking perfectionist, always used to, you know, getting accolades, certainly not getting in academic trouble. And everything was just crumbling. So it was so painful and humiliating. And all those things led me to think and take a step back and say, I'm feeling so anxious. I'm feeling so depressed. What do I do? How do I pull myself out of it? And then I started using the tools of my profession and found them falling short. I was still feeling this despite going to therapy, despite trying to figure out through the medical model how to really heal. And that's what led me to start my own spiritual inquiry, saying that, you know, I'm supposed to be helping people with my profession. And if I don't figure out how to heal myself, how in the world am I going to be healing others? And that's what led me to seek other healing tools in unexpected places. So I spent time in ashrams in India, started learning Buddhist meditation in Thailand, went to work with shaman in South Africa and South America, and ultimately went to Israel and then back here to New York City to learn about Kabbalah and other ways of healing. So all of this was a spiritual journey that instilled in me all these other healing tools that I was never taught in medical school or in my residency. And as I did this, my own darkness started to lift, and it gave me so many tools and so many other lenses through which to understand what goes on in patients and what was going on in myself. And so my book, really, and my life now is an effort to integrate these two disparate ways of knowing, the Western scientific model and then the more universal spiritual model that pervades so many cultures, both East and West. Have you always used an integrative model? Had you had you started a practice when you felt you needed to go and search? Well, I actually was um, already a working psychiatrist. I was in my residency at the time. And so for the first probably four or five years of practice, I did very traditional Western medicine. And it was only after my own transformation that I started very slowly because, you know, you're kind of nervous. You're like, well, that's not really what I was taught. This is venturing into the unknown. What are patients going to think? Do people really want this? Is this going to be useful? Are others going to benefit in the way that I benefited? 
So very slowly I started to integrate it. And then as people, as I started having results that were unexpected, unexpectedly better than what I had with just Western medicine, I started integrating it more and more. And that's what led to my book. Does everybody need that piece? Like, do you have to feel your patients out, you know, where you can bring the integrative approach in your practice? Well, my philosophy at the end of the day is that every patient is unique and needs a uniquely catered approach. So there's no two people who are going to need the same thing. For some people, the Western medical model and the more psychological model is perfect. That's what they want. They don't consider themselves to be particularly spiritual, nor is it something that they're presently seeking in their life. And that's completely fine. That's probably about half my practice. But there's so many people more and more who are looking for a way to connect to something greater and looking for a way to integrate spirituality into their life and work and into the healing that we do together. Do you find that some people don't realize that they're looking for that spiritual piece? And then as they're dealing with you, that sort of comes to the forefront? Oh, absolutely. That happens a lot. And I would say, you know, the number one thing that I encounter in my practice, and this is in busy New York City where people's lives are filled to the brim, but despite all that and despite everything people have, people come in often feeling empty, alone, somehow depleted, exhausted. And it's not just from being busy. It's really from something being missing. And together with my patients, we try to fill this void and better understand what's the nature of this void. How can you fill this void? So often people turn to addictions to fill their voids, whether it be drugs and alcohol, whether it be certain behaviors to fill the addiction. Some people fill, you know, that void through love. And then some people over time learn to fill that void through a connection to something greater, whether that be God or the universe. It doesn't matter if you're religious or if you are an atheist. There's still ways of filling that void that actually are more sustainable and constructive than addictions. You know, addictions are the typical way of people filling voids. And that also, by the way, includes psychological addictions, addictions to power, to money, to status. The way that you know it's an addiction is that the more of it that you have, the emptier you feel. And that's very different than spirituality. With spirituality, the more of it you have, the more full you feel, the more content and fulfilled you begin to feel. Do you think it's because when you work in that piece of spirituality, you realize that you're not relying only on yourself and your your things that there's an, an energy maybe that, that we can tap into that goes beyond what we can do on, on our own? I think that's a huge, huge piece of it. And it reminds me when one of my teachers, my spiritual teachers way back, said to me that you know, I was talking about something and she interpreted what I was saying and said to me, you know, you feel like you're so alone in this world. You feel that it's like you against the world. It's all up to you. But actually, there is this greater force that's watching you, that's guiding you, that really wants the best for you and is trying to help you get there. And all these seeming challenges that are coming up in your life is really the universe pushing you to be the best version of yourself. And I thought that was actually quite profound and really different from the way that I'd been taught before. You know, for a lot of people, it's like, duh, yeah, we know that. We've been taught that from, you know, day one in church or in synagogue. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was actually quite profound and the idea that we're actually never alone. And there is something greater protecting us and guiding us. It's, you know, it's hard to imagine someone who's gone to school, lived their life, had success, feeling empty, and then coming to the realization that, what they need goes beyond what they can do on their very own. That must be very hard for somebody to face, you know, especially a professional. You're exactly right, because, you know, what we're taught in Western culture in general, and certainly in medical school, is that we need to be strong and independent and autonomous. And everything we're taught, including all the knowledge we're given, is how to become more empowered as individuals. But... What I realized over time is that a lot of this true power doesn't come in our doing things on our own. It actually comes in our surrender, our surrender to something greater than us to help guide us and open doors for us that otherwise 
would never ever have opened or we would never even know to open because we can expand and grow in ways that we never anticipated. Such as, you know, in my own life, I never expected to be spiritual. That's not how I was raised. I was uber scientific always. Whether there was a God or not, sure, it was an interesting scientific philosophical question, and I studied philosophy in college and debated that question. But it was never a personal question. It never really mattered. And then one day this door opened in the midst of my dark night of the soul, and I walked through it almost unexpectedly, and then my whole life changed. And had I been so set in my ways so as to think, okay, this is the only way of doing things, I need to continue to be the person that I've always been, I never would have walked through that door. The door would never have opened. And I think it's in that surrender, in being open to what the universe holds that might be beyond our own preconceptions, that a lot of the true healing of our lives comes from. Have you had a lot of pushback in your own profession with these point of views? Um, Some, certainly. And, you know, I've been trying to do it in a way that really does integrate the Western medical model. So I'm not rejecting anything. Mm -hmm. The only thing I'm rejecting is anybody who believes that they have a monopoly on truth, whether it be Western medicine or certain spiritual beliefs or certain practices. I think it's so important to be open and to recognize that everybody is unique and needs to heal in a unique way. So I think by virtue of that, and by virtue of my trying to integrate as opposed to trying to reject, my colleagues have actually been very open to the idea. And um, my book was supported by and endorsed by two former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association, which is the governing body of medical psychiatrists in America. And that's, you know, That was such a big deal to me because I didn't want to reject my profession. The last thing I wanted to do was to become an outlier then in the psychiatric community. What I wanted to do actually was try to introduce something into the world of psychiatry and expand the boundaries of my own world. And thank goodness that's, at least for now, is what's been happening. It's only natural, though, to try and get empirical evidence for for what you're saying. And have have you found that science is is catching up with your, your beliefs and your ideals and, and your convictions? Is that something that's happening, or is it still too esoteric? Yeah, and that's such an interesting question, because science by its nature, just like you said, demands empirical evidence, demands proof, demands things that we could see and observe and hear and subject to our senses, our five senses. But spiritual experiences often are exactly the opposite. It's not something that you can always see or observe or know empirically. It's usually deeply subjective or transcendent. And if people have a miraculous experience or a spiritual awakening, it's certainly difficult to subject that to, you know, a repetitive experiment or a double-blind control trial, which is what makes studying spirituality scientifically so just inherently difficult. They're so opposite in so many ways. But that being said, people are still trying because it's been shown that when you have some sort of spiritual belief, whatever that is, whatever, whether it's religious or spiritual, there's you know plenty of atheists who, by virtue of connecting, whether it be to Mother Nature, the universe, something greater than themselves, are actually deeply spiritual people. So when you have spirituality in your life, you heal faster and more thoroughly from almost every illness, whether it be cancer, whether it be arthritis, whether it be mental illness, whether it be addiction. And actually, a spiritual awakening is one of the greatest predictors of positive outcomes with addiction recovery. So it's been shown over and over, but it's hard to design the gold standard scientific trial, which is a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, to test these kinds of ideas. Of course, of course, it's, it's, it's such an interesting, interesting topic. Now, before we go to break, um, you talk a lot in your book about the dark, the dark night of the soul. And maybe we can set that up so we can use the second half of the show to really delve into the, all the points that are some of the points that are in your book. But what do you mean by that? Like you, t- you talked yourself about you had a dark night of your soul. Yeah, so... For me, my belief of the dark night of the soul is actually that thing that comes into your life that beckons you into a place that you've never known and from which you have to look outside of yourself to get out. So for me, it was this darkness in my personal and professional life. It was anxiety, depression, 
That was my dark night of the soul. For other people, their dark night of the soul could be addictions. It could be a breakup and they just can't get over it. It could be a repetition compulsion where they're trying over and over to fix something in their life and just can't. It's whatever really is the greatest source of pain in your life. That is people's dark night of the soul. Well, that's a great way to end the first half, because when we start the second half, we're going to start talking about how we can repair and really go into the tenets of your book, which is just so phenomenal to read. So we will be back in a few minutes after this break. I'm so confused. I know I heard you loud and clear. I followed through Somehow I ended up here I don't want to think I may never understand That my broken heart Is a part of your plan When I try to pray All I got is hurt And these four words on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. 
Welcome back, everybody. We are here talking today live with Dr. Annie Yassim, internationally acclaimed author of the book Fulfilled. And we have a question, Dr. Yassim, and it, it kind of is a launch pad for where we want to go with the rest of, of our conversation here. You talk about um, soul corrections in your book. Uh, it's a very important tenet of, of what you're trying to get across. But I had a question come in asking, what would you say the definition of our soul is? Oh, that's a beautiful question. And it's a particularly relevant question because as a psychiatrist, I don't think I ever heard the word soul um, told to me in medical school ever in my studies. You're not really taught about the soul. You're taught about the mind and you're taught about the body and maybe the heart, but a heart as a blood pumping machine as opposed to, you know, the center of love in your life or the uh, in your uh, body. So the best definition of soul that I heard because I asked the same question, and then went to try to understand and seek out this definition from as many people as I could who I trusted. Um, The best definition came from a shaman in uh, Mexico with whom I worked, Fernando Broca, and he described the soul as being comprised of two parts, the soul and the spirit. The first part is that part which encapsulates our own uniqueness, and that's our authenticity. And that's why I define in my book, authenticity is really connecting to your soul. And your authenticity, your authentic soul, is comprised of what you're meant to contribute to this world, the contribution you're meant to make, as well as the soul corrections or the challenges that you will overcome in this lifetime. So that's the uniqueness of that you embody as a part of your soul. The other part of the soul is that which connects us to everybody and everything, so our interconnectedness. Sometimes spiritual people will say that we are all one unified soul, and that's what they mean. So the soul is this two-partite system that is your uniqueness as well as our inherent interconnectedness. So can we be truly fulfilled if we don't know our authenticity or we don't come in contact with our own soul? So my belief is that you could up to a point, but that true fulfillment entails knowing who you are at the deepest level, starting to live authentically, and having a strong idea of what it is that you're meant to do in the world, so your soul contribution, as well as the challenges that you're meant to overcome, your soul corrections. Do we have to start with the soul corrections to get down to our authenticity? You know, sometimes not, um, but it's one of those things that your soul corrections, those are those things that keep coming up in your life again and again and again, sometimes much to your chagrin and dismay and despite your best efforts to change it. <clears throat> so your soul corrections can be known by looking at the greatest source of pain and challenge in your life and seeing where that comes from. And in knowing that, knowing what your struggles are, it really gives you a more authentic glance of, as to who you are as a person and where it is that you're meant to go in this world. So knowing your soul corrections helps you become more authentic. So how do we know our soul corrections? Are there steps to correcting our soul and leading us in the right direction? <clears throat> so the first question with that is, what is the greatest source of pain in your life? And I took a sip of water. Sorry about that. That's okay. My throat was getting a little dry. Um, And then as you ask that question, you can ask yourself, what keeps coming up again and again? Is it relationship issues, for instance? You keep drawing in emotionally unavailable men, one right after the other, despite you telling yourself that what you really want is a relationship. Or is it that you are unable to release certain addictive behaviors, whether they be behavioral addictions like workaholism or sex addiction, or whether they be addictions to alcohol or marijuana or even food. And that's another form of a soul correction. Another soul correction is that you can find yourself unable to move beyond your fear, that you find yourself stuck in life and held back by not being able to overcome something and you don't even know what it is. And fears, you know, inherently fears are meant to protect us. They're meant as an instinct that our, you know, a brain region called the amygdala gives to us to help us survive. But at this point, survival really isn't as much of an issue. And so we can have these fear responses in response to things really that don't have to be fearful. 
like asking for a promotion, like trying on, out a new job, like breaking through a barrier, like being able to confront someone who you've been afraid to confront, being able to let somebody know something you have been unable to let them know before. And then another soul correction is owning your personal power. And people give away their power in all sorts of ways. They do so by being a victim. They can do so by letting their thoughts, repetitive thoughts that are somehow maladaptive, let those thoughts control them and take them away from who they really are to disconnect them from their soul. They can also do it by harboring grudges and letting your anger at another person control you as opposed to you know, succumbing and being able to surrender and forgive. So those are just four of the soul corrections that I cover in my book, and those are harnessing personal power, transforming fear, improving your relationships, and releasing addictions. Do you feel as society, you know, you did your, all your traveling and you went out to the Eastern world are we devoid of our soul in the Western world? Or what is that? Why do you have to travel to the East to find the meaning of spirituality? Is there something in the Western mm-hmm. world that we're doing completely wrong? Right. It's, it's such a great question. I think if there is anything that we're doing in the Western world that perhaps is not wrong, but keeps you from connecting to yourself, is that we are running and running and running. We are moving so fast. We have a million ways to distract ourselves at all times, whether it be through our computers or our iPhones or the 80 million work responsibilities we have or the date that we have followed by, movie with a friend followed by. We are running all the time, and it's hard to slow down. And it's hard to connect to that part of yourself, that still quiet voice within or your intuition that can only be heard when we take a deep breath when we slow down and when the yelling of our thoughts and the screaming of our emotions temporarily ceases. A lot of the Eastern practices have to do with meditation, have to do with slowing the mind, starting to watch your thoughts more. And in that stillness, there is a real wisdom and a real knowledge that can't really be gained in any other way than through that stillness. Do you, you know, meditation comes up a lot and gratefulness. It's, it's the... It's the trend of 2018 that I see. It's all over the place. Are we finally realizing that there is something missing? Is that what's coming into play here? Yeah, it's so interesting because the two things you point out, gratitude and meditation, those aren't things that you go to a store to buy. Those aren't things that you need a lot of money to get. Those are two things that you get by looking within yourself by slowing down and starting to become more aware of what goes on within you, and by creating that small perceptual shift to focus, instead of focusing on what you are lacking in your life, focusing on that which is in abundance already, and being grateful for that. So that's the most interesting part about what you said. They're trends, but they're trends of looking inwards, which is the beautiful thing. It's funny because we have to look inwards to help us look outwards. Exactly, exactly. And there's a number of spiritual principles that say, as within, so without, or basically as inside, so outside, and as above, so below. Whatever happens to us in this world, in our inner world, is only a reflection of what's happening, if you believe, you know, in there being an outer world. So it's a reflection of what's happening in the outer worlds, in, you know, the other dimensions. And whatever's happening inside of us is a reflection of what's happening in our external world, in our work, in our relationships, and everything outside of us, which is why one of the most powerful things you can do in, if you want to shift the world outside of you, if you want more abundance, different relationships, different people, is to look within and start shifting that which is within you. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. You know, it seems like such a simple thing to do, but it's gravely difficult. I don't, you know, it's if we're... gravely difficult. And it's, this is what I say to patients, that changing yourself is the most difficult thing you're ever going to do. And it's also the most worthwhile thing. It, it's so, you know, it's, I've started in 2018 to do a gratitude journal. I've been telling people this and it has, I, I feel that it's helped. Um, it, and I do try and be great. There are days when 
my gratefulness doesn't rise to the top as well as it should. I mean, and, and that's a, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a practice that you have to get used to. It's like yoga. It's like meditation, but you know, integrative aspects of, of care do take longer. There's, there's just no question. It's not a quick fix. You're, you're exactly right. And sometimes, you know, I'm not saying that medication doesn't help because it certainly has changed the lives of many patients that I work with. But sometimes medication can be too quick of a fix. It's a quick fix. And then people don't have to do the work on themselves of actually changing themselves. Now, that's not usually what I see in my practice because when people come asking for meds from me, usually it's because they've done and tried to do a ton of work on themselves. And it's years before they finally succumb the courage to say, you know what, I have done yoga and meditation and I've gone to the Himalayas and I've done this and that. Nothing has worked. Finally, I'm going to try meds for my OCD. Mm-hmm. Something like that. You know, that's probably a much more common picture than I see. And some people see medications as a cop-out, but it usually, what I see, it's exact opposite. It's finally people, you know, are tentatively taking that step forward to do something when everything else has failed. Um, but you're, you're exactly right. Do you find with your popularity and the popularity of your book growing that you're starting to see a, a different type of patient walk through your door? Has your practice changed a lot because of your patient base? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like since the book has come out, probably the le- like 90% of the patients, new patients I've had, have been people who've read the book and have come to me and said, I would like to work with you. And the most flattering part of that has been that numerous psychiatrists in my own profession have called me and said, I would like you to be my psychiatrist. And that's such a wonderful thing, which to me has been saying, you know, that you know, this is something that our profession so, so needs. And the fact that others in my profession who were trained as traditionally as I was are wanting as their own psychiatrist, someone with a much more integrated perspective is such a beautiful thing. And I really think it's the direction that hopefully things in the medical world are moving. We can sort of see that you're broaching the integrative aspect being invited to the Goop Summit. I mean, that definitely is an integrative summit, and you took part in that. Were were you comfortable being surrounded by that type of sort of thought, that type of, of process? Because I know that the people that follow, you know, the Goop way, are they're very integrative, to say the least. Was that comfortable for you? Yes, absolutely. I, I love being a part of it, and I love meeting all of the fascinating people who've come from all walks of life, many with holistic, integrative approaches. And, you know, in my practice, I do still prescribe medication, and probably about 50% of my patients are on meds. And I was on a panel with people who don't prescribe at all and who are actually quite anti-prescribing. And that's okay. And we both had different points of views that we were able to espouse. And really, you know, my, in part, um, reason for going on is to share that it is possible to bridge these two often contradictory worlds, to be able to exist within the world of traditional Western medicine and prescribe for people when needed, but also to help people to come off their medicine and help them seek more holistic, integrative approaches when they want and when indicated for them. We need more people in the medical field to speak like that, because um, I think the integrative approach has so many, many benefits, and it doesn't have to be one or the other. And I think of all that you do, I find that the most admirable, especially coming from such extensive training. You have a couple of other points that I I want to make sure that we touch on. Um, Living in the here and now, that is very, very difficult. Do you have, that's something that you talk about. Do you have ways that we can start doing that or why you feel that's an important thing to do for helping your patients? Right, you know, yeah, kind of like you were saying, you know, how gratitude and meditation is, you know, hot and cool right now, so is living in the present moment. I feel like that's another one of those things, mm-hmm. you know? And in the same way as meditation and gratitude, living in the present moment really comes from looking within and being able to be more in your body. Your breath is that which connects your inner world to your outer world. And actually focusing on your breath is what enables you to start to be more present. We breathe all the time, but very rarely do we recognize that we are breathing. And 
to be in the present moment, because when you think about it, this is really the place of power. Everything else is in the past, so it becomes a thought, or in the future, so it's a thought. So the only way that we can live outside of our thoughts and actually be in our bodies is to be in the present, to really focus on your body and your senses and your breath and the different parts of your body, like your heart and your stomach. And so what I often tell people to try to be more in the present moment is first to focus on every aspect of their breath, their in-breath, their out-breath, and to feel it as it goes in your nose, as it goes down you know, your throat, into your stomach, and to actually feel your stomach expanding, contracting. And then at the same time, to start to focus on your five senses. What is it that you're smelling right now? What do you see around you? What do you hear right now? It's such a funny thing because those are two things, our breath and our senses, that when we give it conscious attention, we're so much more in the present than we usually are because usually we're here, but we're so much more in our minds than in our bodies. Oh, it's, you know, we're disadvantaged in the Western world. We have planning to do. We have, you know, things that are always, I was saying to someone yesterday, I have three calendars and it's, it's so hard. (laughs) It's so hard to try and live in the present when you're always planning for future events, not so much the past. I mean, that, that, uh, you know, I I can see where some people uh, live in the past a little bit. But for me, my hang up is I'm always looking to what I need to be doing, trying to get the, the, the list checked off. It never ends. There's always something that comes on. And that is my that's my thing that I'm really trying to work on. But I find that so very, very difficult to live in the present. Yeah, exactly. And we get so much buzz. We get so much reinforcement from living in the future and from planning because it feels really good to get things done, to check it off your list, to, you know, do a radio show, to cook dinner for your children, to A, B, C, D. Those are things that all feel good. And it's not that we're not supposed to do them. It's that how can we do them mindfully and while being in the present? And of course, planning is a normal part of our life. We're not going to stop planning. We're not going to become Buddhist monks sitting on a mountaintop. But how do we do that? and be mindful in the planning, but then be equally mindful in the doing. Exactly. Another point that I really like what I've heard when you're speaking is overcoming the fear of death. And that, that is something that haunts a lot of us, especially if, if you get ill, if you take, uh, you know, you, uh, your health takes a bit of a turn. The fear of death is, is something that can be disabling, I imagine. And you have some very... Um, very knowledgeable, very smart ways of sort of dealing with that, that fear of death that I, I'm, I'm hoping you can share. Yes, absolutely. And death anxiety is a very common human fear. And my favorite book in overcoming death anxiety is actually called Staring at the Sun by existential psychiatrist Irvin Yalom. And what Dr. Yalom says in his book is that the people who least fear death are those with the least unlived life within them. So how do you live a life where you don't fear death? You live your own life to the fullest. And what this means is that when we fear death, it's not actually death that we fear. It's that we haven't lived life as fully as we want to or should. It's usually things in your own life that somehow or another are going, you know, aren't what you want them to be. There's been fears holding you back or life hasn't really turned out exactly as you'd hoped. And, you know, life doesn't always turn out as we had hoped, but then we ask ourselves the question, is there anything I could do to live my life more fully? And if so, what would that be? And, you know, Dr. Yalom even recommends some very interesting practices, like going into a cemetery and walking around and recognizing one day we will all be here and really not pushing away the fear of death, but beckoning it and welcoming it in and recognizing this will one day be all of us and then asking that question, you know, knowing that death is part of life. What do we want to do now to live more fully? What haven't I done that I need to do? If today was my last day, what are the things that maybe I would do that I've never had the courage to do before? And we're living right now in another trend about anti-aging and pushing that off. And (laughs) that, that makes it difficult, too, because when the trend is trying to stay as young and look as young and feel as young as possible, that makes death seem very bad. And it, it, it takes us out of the natural rhythm of life, which is death, as you said, 
but it's it's taken on this um, something to beat back. And when it takes on a negative intonation, it's it's hard to yeah, think like exactly this. Exactly right. Yeah, and that's the other thing, right? Because in this world, and so Dr. Gallum, who I was mentioning, <clears throat> he is a diehard atheist. He doesn't believe necessarily in an afterlife. But for people who do, death isn't something to be feared. Death is just a transitional state that takes us from this one transitional state of life to the next transitional state of death, which is the afterlife, the next life. And then there'll be, if you believe in reincarnation, many more lifetimes. So part of the fear of death comes from a very materialist universe and this idea that the body is all there is, that there isn't this idea of a transcendent soul that actually sticks around after the body is gone. You know, a lot of spiritualists, they don't believe in death. They believe in the death of death. So being able to believe in the soul and recognize, yeah, the things here might be temporary, but life and the life of the soul, that's infinite. So live a life well lived. Do your best. Exactly. Be the best you can be and be fulfilled. And be fulfilled. This has been a wonderful interview, and I so appreciate the time that you've taken to be with us. Do you have anything oh, that you pleasure. can... Oh, it's my pleasure. It's our pleasure. Alex and I are just uh, sitting here listening to your words, and it, they're just, they're just uh, wonderful to hear. Is there something oh, you can you leave so our listeners happy. with? That Absolutely. Yes. Um, so um, what we have, if you go on my website, we have some free meditations to help people to, number one, get in touch with what you most deeply want and connect to your soul. Number two, to live more mindfully. And number three, just some meditations for relaxation. And they're on my website, which is com, and it's under the link tools. So those are a few practices that listeners can use. Um, and, yeah, and I wish everybody a life of fulfillment. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Your book is called Fulfilled. How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. It is everywhere. I checked. It's not just an American-bound book. We have it at Chapters. We have it online at Amazon, I'm sure. Um, All the books, uh, companies in the States have it. It's a phenomenal book. I truly encourage you to read it. Go to Dr. Yusim's website. She's got many, many valuable tools. Thank you for joining us again, Dr. Yusim. And thank you to our listeners. And have a wonderful week. And thank you for joining us on The Health Hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.